You are listening to the JCN Clinic Podcast. The JCN Clinic Podcast is a place where nutritionalists Jessica Cox and Carissa Mason get real about nutrition and living a healthy life. They share with you their passion and their clinical knowledge for a fun, no BS approach to looking after yourself. Please enjoy today's episode and don't forget to subscribe and iTunes. Hello and welcome to the JCN Clinic podcast show. I'm Jessica. I'm Carissa. And today we are bringing you a SIBO update. Carissa pointed out that it's been since episode six. Episode six. A long time ago, considering this is, I think, probably episode 80, I don't know, four or five today. So quite a few years ago, I would say. I think it's 2017 when I go back and redirect people. Yeah, crazy. Hey, because is that when we started our podcast? I feel like it was. I don't know. That is your, that's a question for you with your elephant elephant memory. (laughs) I'm lucky to remember what I ate for dinner last night. Well, I could tell you. (laughs) You could tell me. You could tell me what I was wearing three years ago on like May the 28th. (laughs) I know. My memory only works for work though like other things it's just like nah like, remember when you did this I'm like no mom's like remember when I took you here and you had this beautiful thing with your childhood I'm like soz mom <laughs> this beautiful thing with your childhood <laughs> she does I think she put so much effort into us as kids and she reminds us of all the straw blanks we're like mm. <laughs> so it was a while ago and we do get asked continually about SIBO and with our recent call out it was also another topic that people ask for more on. So considering it was quite a few years ago that we did talk about SIBO, it definitely makes sense to revisit it in relation to updated information overall. And um, I think we we did this obviously a few episodes ago in relationship to stool testing. So it only makes sense to bring it into the SIBO space. So Let's start with a bit of an overview, of course, for those who are like, what is SIBO? Um, I feel like it's very well known now compared to three or four years ago, but still, yeah, you have, we, I know we have clients at the clinic when you're talking to them about their gut and you mentioned SIBO, they're like, nah, don't know what you're talking about. What is that weird, <laughs> weird acronym you're throwing at me? So it stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um and essentially what we are dealing with is bacteria that have gotten into too high of a number within your small intestinal tract. So we do have bacteria at a small amount in our small intestinal tract, like it's not devoid of them, but they shouldn't be in high numbers. The higher colonization of bacteria is in your lower colon. That's that's why we do the stool testing and look into what's happening there with bacteria, as long as other along with other markers as well. Um, when we do that, that stool testing, but we don't want to see large numbers of bacteria present in the small intestinal tract. If we do, we start to see a lot of symptoms, um, and we'll be, of course, talking about that as we move ahead, but. 
as far as a definition, um, that's what SIBO means. There's also, a, well, I think we talked about this when we did the stool testing too, some of the other acronyms. Um, that I was have, just about to say those as well. It's probably a good time to bring them up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So CFO, is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, and then I was going to go LIBO and LIFO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So in the small intestinal context, CFO is small intestinal fungal overgrowth, which we don't actually have testing for at this point. Um, it would be more driven by suspicion around symptoms and maybe some other things we might see in testing. So when we do SIBO testing, um, we are looking for gas production as far as the bacteria that are present and the type of gases that they produce. So do you want to mention about what we would be looking at there? What sort of gas productions we would see? Yes. So we're looking for methane, like you mean in the testing? Yeah. Yeah. So we're looking for, at the moment, they can test for methane gases and hydrogen gases. And that probably is worth mentioning tying back to the different types of SIBO that you can mm -hmm. have as well, do you reckon? Yep. So typically with methane gases and they, the testing itself, just basically you drink this type of sugar solution, depending on what it might be. It might be lactulose, glucose or something else, um, depending on how many types of tests that you're doing to look for SIBO. But essentially what it does is it registers a, a methane or a hydrogen count um, in parts per million that's coming out every time you take a breath out. And then that, if there's the different types of gases, then depending on what those gases are, um, basically demonstrate whether SIBO is present and in, in, and in what type. So you can have methane producing bacteria that will um, register on a test and you can have hydrogen producing bacteria that will present on a test and you can have both. Mm -hmm. So if they are present in a SIBO breath test and you get a positive <laughs> or a borderline depending mm -hmm. on with one or two of the things, then we can pretty safely assume that you have got small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So how that would present before we go too much into a heap of the symptoms, but is... <laughs> There's different types of SIBO and obviously what Jess and I are hoping for is there's going to be a hydrogen. Is this one you said there was actually one overseas, the hydrogen Yeah, sulfide. there is. In America, yeah. there is a test available. Yeah, so you can have hydrogen gas and hydrogen sulfide producing, or hydrogen producing bacteria and hydrogen sulfide producing bacteria. So typically, and this isn't always the case, but typically if you're really constipated um, and you've got small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, so you've got SIBO and you're really constipated, with that, typically what we would see is a lot of methane producing mm -hmm. bacteria. So you're gonna you're gonna register a high methane reading on a SIBO breath test. Whereas if you're someone who gets a very irritated loose bowel, you're producing sometimes um, smelly gas and flatulence with that, but you're more definitely trending towards the diarrhea slash very loose sort of you know, bowel presentation where you're probably um, more hydrogen or hydrogen sulfide dominant with your bacteria. So hydrogen bacteria and hydrogen sulfide producing bacteria are a lot more aggravating to the gut wall. And it, with that aggravation comes in, like the bowel will draw in a lot of water to try and flush that out. So you end up with the looser bowels, whereas methane producing bacteria by nature um, and I know this is a very like black and white way of looking at it because we get a lot of overlaps in the SIBO area, which is why it's such a complicated little condition to treat. But just 
more probably classically, if you have a lot of methane producing bacteria in your gut, what they do is actually lock the gut wall up. So instead of having that beautiful peristalsis and, you know, fluid balance of electrolytes in the gut and a, a nice, you know, semi like kind of alkaline environment, well, I hate using that word, but anyway, it's probably <laughs> the most relevant one to use. It creates kind of more of this um, acidic sort of environment where the bowel wall just actually doesn't function the way it should. And that muscle motility and peristalsis is actually almost kind of locked up and stopped. So you've mm-hmm. been very constipated. Yeah. Yeah. The gases, the gases they produce can actually affect, as you were just saying, like the motility mm. of the small intestinal tract, or if it's lower bowel, um, the peristalsis there, like the, yeah, the actual, the gases will physically affect the the functionality of the motility like the muscular motility mm. which is is pretty hectic yeah. um, as far <laughs> as the effect of these gases and it's pretty amazing as Chris has just highlighted how different these underlying bacterial imbalances react in the gut depending on the gases that they are producing so <clears throat> absolutely there's there's a, a real um, sort of symptom picture we might expect with constipation versus diarrhea and what we might expect on a test result. But also we say that, but we also know it's not always so black and white, which is why testing is really important because we may assume a hydrogen presentation or assume a methane presentation and we can test and actually see there might be some other things going on or we might find that SIBO isn't the actual cause um, as far as what might be going on too. So the, the testing, I feel like with the testing, it's a really important test, but it's just as important to use to diagnose SIBO as to also rule out that it isn't SIBO. Mm. Um, and I think even the money spent on that for a negative test is really important with some clients. So you know that SIBO isn't going on and then you can look elsewhere if required. But definitely with the, the test results, it enables us as practitioners to look a little deeper and the, the test will tell you whether it's a positive or a negative result or borderline, as, as Crystal was saying. But we can look a little deeper at the presentation and the, the numbers that we see on a test. So, for example, if you have high methane on a test, um, it may say negative um, or even borderline, but you actually have quite high numbers of methane overall. So we know that we don't want a lot of methane production in general with those numbers we're seeing. And if they're sitting up quite high, just naturally, we know there's quite a lot of methane production going on. Now, it may not be enough for classically to see a rise in gas production for the test to go, oh, that's a positive because they need to see a rise of a certain amount of numbers. But we as clinicians can look at that and go, oh, you know what, that's a hell of a lot of methane going on there. And in context with you as a person, if you're dealing with a lot of constipation and we see that, we can tell that there's most likely a methane overload in the small intestinal tract or to go back to some of our acronyms again, something we call EMO, which is intestinal methanogen overgrowth. Technically, methane, also not that it really matters so much, but the reason, other than the reason they've changed that name is methane. They're not, producers aren't actually bacteria, they're archaea. So they've changed the name for that too, but it doesn't really make a difference. Like it's, it, it just, 
is a, a name. <laughs> we still treat in the same way. Um, but what I'm trying to highlight is one of just one of the reasons of how we would look at this test and interpret it further and why a clinician that can look at the data effectively, the same as we would with a stool test and read a bit more between the lines based on you is so important. Um, and I'd kind of, before we move on to symptoms, would say that even in regards to hydrogen sulfide, like we have ways of looking at a test to be suspicious of hydrogen sulfide gas production, but we don't have the, the test yet. But you can look at it and ascertain hints of that alongside presentations of symptoms. But again, you, you have to be careful as a practitioner to make sure you're not um, kind of putting putting like your interpretation onto that in like what you want to see. Like it's it's not a definite, it's not like telling you, yes, whoops, that'd be my phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a definite. So we need to look at that data in context with symptoms you might have that tell us that there might be hydrogen sulfide overgrowth. So yeah, I just wanted to mention some of the variants that we see in testing and why obviously testing is important, but why it's not always just a black and white test response. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, obviously for SIBO to become present, there's usually and most likely um, issues with the large bowel as well. So the colon. So quite often we will couple if someone is financially able to do so um a SIBO test and a stool test so we can actually see basically get a really good picture of the entire or a good chunk of the gastrointestinal tract um because understanding if we're just dealing with a large bowel issue or a small bowel issue or both so usually if you're dealing with a small bowel issue you're going to be dealing with a large bowel issue but you can be dealing with a large bowel issue without dealing with a small bowel issue so sometimes understanding that it is and the differentiation is really important um and sometimes yeah like we'll start with doing a stool test and end up in a couple of months or you know eight months down the track or 10 months mm -hmm. down the track or 12 months down the track depending on how complicated someone's gut is is using a SIBO test to actually sometimes SIBO tests are great to use as um even progress markers for people Absolutely. that don't don't love redoing a stool test um just retesting a baseline lactulose test for SIBO is a great kind of, yeah, progress marker in terms of how much of a dent you're making in, you know, starving off certain small intestinal overgrowth bacterium. <laughs> 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 but also to like how effective is the treatment that you're doing? How far do you have to go? Yeah. Um, yeah. But then sometimes too, like, yeah, we'll do a SIBO test and then get so far with a client. Hey, and then like, we really need to know what's going on with your large bowel. Like what mm -hmm. else is at play here? So yeah. Yeah, it's not always super clear cut. Like it, you know, sometimes with our clients, we might do both tests straight up depending. But a lot of the time, I think, as you've just said, we may, you well, we do use a certain test based on your presentation of what we assume is going on. And then as time progresses, if needed, we might then go, okay, we started with a stool. Now we need info about your small intestinal tract or vice versa. Yeah. Um, what about, I guess, symptoms? Like we're sort of talking a good overview of the test here and some of the updates there with the hydrogen sulfide that hopefully will be with us soon. But when it comes to symptoms and SIBO. suspicions around SIBO, what do we look for in clients? If someone's on in, in the clinic or on our screen yep. via Zoom or Skype, 
what are those those sort of um, alarm bells that were like, ooh, this sounds like it could be SIBO? Mm. Um, okay, let's go through a few. So obviously the bowel changes that we've I chatted about before. So you can be chronically constipated or have really loose bowels. Um, sometimes alternating bowels, like if someone's like, I'm really constipated for a couple of days a week and then I just get a run of loose bowels and then I block back up. So that alternating bowels is a real classic, classic thing. Um, I think one of like just stay, staying with the lower part of the digestive tract before we move up into the upper digestive tract. But another thing is that classic, I ate this meal one day and I was so fine. And then I ate it three days later, exact same meal. And my gut blew up like a balloon. Mm-hmm. Um, just that not being able to really pinpoint your food to your gut symptoms. Like obviously if most people, like, let's just say if they're pretty in tune with their gut, they know if they have a gluten issue, like they're like, my mm-hmm. gut's really good. Then I eat gluten and I'm bloated. So it's yeah. just, it's cause and effect. Whereas with SIBO, there's not a lot of being able to establish cause and effect with gut symptoms. And it's a real mind fuck for people that have it, especially mm-hmm. when they've had it for quite a long period of time, because it creates quite a bad relationship with food and all of that stuff. But it's that whole, I just don't know what's causing this. Cause no matter what I do, whether I eat well or eat shit quite often, sometimes they're like, I feel better when I eat shit. So just plain carbs and, mm, <laughs> so you know, true. Chips and all of yeah. that kind of stuff yeah less fiber and just you know white plain starch so things like that so that's a real classic they're like i tried to clean my diet up and i bought fiber back in like lots of veggies and that and all all of a sudden my gut's a mess so there's some real classic classic things that come up in the SIBO in the SIBO picture when we're talking about it but that whole alternating bowels and not being able to establish cause and effect with food and symptoms is usually a big one mm-hmm. um, and then I'm going to say like even just the bloating there's a real characteristic SIBO mm-hmm. bloat isn't there there sure is <laughs> <laughs> so people will get bloat well and again please take all of this with like the context of it's not a box but generally you will get bloating quickly after eating as opposed to a slow build up through the day now and I say that because I know Chris is the same and not the other um, clinicians at the JCN clinic like we see a mix of the two all the time and that's because Often there is an element of SIBO with lower bowel dysbiosis going on and yeast, like it all it all can come in its own little nice package. But with SIBO, generally the food leaves your stomach, enters into the small intestinal tract, it's hanging out in there for the next couple of hours. So as soon as it goes in there and the bacteria start to ferment and have their little like fermentation party with that food, <laughs> you're going to get really quick responses. And that's going to be that bloating and distension and gas. So we'll, we'll have people say to us, literally, as soon as I eat, I blow up like a balloon. And then it will go down over the next few hours. And then I eat again and whoosh, up it goes again. Like that's really classic SIBO presentation. Yeah with the bloating pattern but yeah I, I mean when you, we hear that a lot but I, we will also hear someone say and it's also worse by the end of the day so yeah. and even to sometimes too like that the real hardcore SIBO which I know we've chatted about in other podcasts is obviously no appetite because their gut's just so swollen all the time and then yeah. they'll get up in the morning and just have a drink of water or a cup yes. of tea and their gut is just swelling from that so that's yeah. like obviously you know worst case SIBO scenario Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah for sure but, but that is also something that's classic like people will be like it doesn't matter what I eat or drink as soon mm-hmm. as something's like almost touches my lips and passes through my gut like my actual stomach in you know so give it like that one to two hour window sometimes it's even quicker than that I am blowing mm-hmm. up and it's that 
you know, some people it's just a hard sort of bloat. Some people it's so bloated and tight. I'm grabbing my gut as I say this, mm-hmm. but it's like someone has literally got like that bicycle wheel pump and just gone yeah. <laughs> and just pumped up their gut. And that's people, I've, I know you would have as well, but clients will send you photos of their gut. Like, you know, the difference between having a, a flat, and I use that in air quotes, but like a flatter tummy, which is to be more expected when you wake mm-hmm. up versus, you know, they have a sip of water or they've had two meals for the day and they think they were healthy meals. They might've just been some stir fried veggies with some garlic and some chicken and some rice. So something you would think is a really beautiful, healthy meal and it is, but it's loaded with those fermentable carbohydrate foods and they have something like that and their gut is the size mm-hmm. like of being six months pregnant. Oh yeah. So... <laughs> Just some other before we move on as far as symptoms and um, I guess flags that we look for is SIBO has been very um, classically linked to post gastroenteritis infections. So it's only one link, but it's a pretty major link. So if we have someone who has gut issues that have come on after some really bad gastro, um, that's going to be a bit of a flag for us. Now, again, that is also going to affect the lower bowel. But if we're seeing the type of bloating we're talking about and that sort of post-infectious gastro presentations um, and then also the other one for us that we'll look for is a lot more upper gastric symptoms Mm. so if someone's had a lot of reflux indigestion and particularly they've ended up on some form of PPI you know classic like Nexiums and so forth that disruption continual disruption of your hydrochloric acid secretion and then not breaking down foods as effectively in your stomach means there's more fermentable substrates from your food that bacteria can really party on. So those things all tied in together, if we start seeing a lot of that, our brains are going to be like, oh, okay, this could be more of a SIBO presentation and look more at that as a testing option for you first before potentially a stool test. So yeah, yeah, there's there's lots of precursors, antibiotic use, a lot of the same things as lower bowel disruption but there's again as a practitioner we should be able to look and find some of these these flags with you um nausea is probably another one nausea and lack of appetite sometimes Mm -hmm. not combined but that whole i don't you didn't say nausea before hey nope nope but nausea is definitely there with SIBO um a lot and unexplained nausea Mm -hmm. i think too i think i've got a lot of clients then you pull their fermentable carbohydrates and they go from feeling nauseous every day yeah. um, and you just even just remove some of the food sources for those bacteria and you can settle nausea down like not completely get rid of it because you still got to deal with the overgrowth in the gut but it definitely mm-hmm. can significantly make a change in how someone feels every day with that kind of just overwhelm of just like Ugh. for sure for sure so i guess with testing like we've talked about the SIBO test but the other the other area that we can see clues, but geez, you've got to be careful and not make assumptions, all of the <laughs> all of the um, sort of asterisks to put on this. But stool testing can give us potentially an idea if SIBO might be at play. And I just say yeah. that with hesitancy because just because you see something in the stool test doesn't mean that it's happening in the small intestinal tract to make automatic assumptions. But But there are some strains of bacteria that have been linked to SIBO. The more SIBO is looked into and tested and researched, we know that certain strains like Klebsiella and E. coli 
uh, even lactobacillus, commensal bacteria that live in your gut. Um, And I guess also kind of thinking obviously the proteobacteria with the methanogens that we were talking about earlier, we know that they are involved with SIBO. So if we see across the board a really high presentation of those on a stool test and an overall really strong overgrowth presentation on a stool test, it would lean us towards suspicions of SIBO, not a diagnosis, but suspicions. Um, Otherwise, the other thing would be short-chain fatty acids. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're seeing um, some really crazy short-chain fatty acid output, again, it's like that really high fermentation picture going on in the lower bowel. So it's it's a flag again, right? Like yeah. and with context with the client, these are the things that we would look for. But just because we see high sulfur bacteria on a stool test doesn't mean that you've got like hydrogen sulfide SIBO. So it's not that clear cut. But, yeah. you know, again, it's interesting for us to be able to look and make those correlations. And yeah. I think anecdotally, the more we work in this space for us with the gut we see a lot of these um yeah sort of lines being drawn don't you think yeah I agree like there's definitely like there's no definitive research for it yet but I think because we deal with so much so many stool tests and we deal with such an array of gut symptoms and we do quite commonly either test SIBO and a gut test together or you just start to really get some really good pictures you know clinical pictures of what SIBO looks like and how it presents for someone yeah you can you can definitely make an educated assumption from a stool test that Mm -hmm. it's there and you can like and I know myself I do this I will treat someone in, in air quotes, I'm using air quotes a lot today, but mm-hmm. for SIBO based off a stool test, but it will be, it depends on that person, what kind of treatment we're doing mm-hmm. um, and then also what they respond to. Because sometimes what they respond to tells you whether or not you, you that guess was pretty accurate as well without yeah. having to spend, you know, two to $400 on a breath test. Yeah. Um, but yeah, exactly like what you're saying. Like sometimes you do a breath test and you're wrong. Like, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> So you literally are just dealing with a large bowel overgrowth and it hasn't yeah. actually like, you know, infiltrated the small intestine yet. Yeah. <laughs> so. But it's so, again, it's good to know. Like it's like doing a blood pathology test and ruling out thyroid or low iron. Like they're, they're things we cross off the list and we don't yeah. want people to spend money, a lot, a lot of money if they don't need to, but yeah knowing that it's not there can be really valuable yeah. as well yeah yeah, yeah exactly. it's, it's 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 an interesting space in regards to testing with SIBO there's I know from yeah listening to other other practitioners talk about it some some are so passionate and diligent about testing 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 and then retesting and I'm look I'm I'm a big retester with SIBO but I also think that if ultimately you're a really good practitioner and a really good more than anything as we know case taker and really understanding mm. your client as you're saying like it you can work with it to a point without always needing to test it's just yeah. knowing when to test and yeah. working with your client um so what about i guess next would be treatment um woo, which is woo, a whole woo, woo. A whole new zone <laughs> i think I think firstly, like anything with the gut, when you're treating a imbalance 
you need to think about two different zones. It's it's dietary intake and how we use diet to influence the gut. So we will work with a client on a very commonly like a low fermentation type of diet. Um, and then we will look at the right supplements based on results specifically um, if we're dealing with a methane overgrowth versus, versus hydrogen. Like that is very specific and that's why the testing's great. So we can cater in the right antimicrobials, prebiotics, probiotics, etc. cetera. Um, I think with a diet, it's a big one that at JCM we're so passionate about because the SIBO space, there's a lot of use of restricted diets. Mm. And I know I teach this in the um, functional diet, what do I call it? <laughs> Dietary <laughs> planning functional testing workshop to other practitioners that it's not often needed that you need to go that extreme. Like yeah. a lot of people are okay with going on just a lower fermentation load or a maybe yeah. a more relaxed FODMAP type of picture. You don't need to go the full biphasic protocol. And again, that's where you need to work through with a client what they're responding to because so often you we, we see it at the clinic all the time, people have been on these really restrictive SIBO protocols with their diet yeah. when they, one, they haven't needed to be and two, they've been on it for so long that it actually ends up causing more problems with undergrowth. lower, yeah, lower bowel undergrowth. So diet's a massive one in this space and yeah. I just it could bang on about it forever how much it should be individualized to the client yeah I think nothing makes us madder hey than when someone's been told they've got SIBO like they end up at our clinic um, because they've worked with other practitioners or they've just listened to some podcasts on their own and the thing is with SIBO is you can order a breath test yourself and do it at home yeah and you can just get the results sent to a doctor or a friend in the health space and you can get your own results and you can essentially treat yourself which is fucking dangerous yeah with SIBO, but the main thing you'll find if you do your own SIBO test or you've worked with a practitioner who just follows a stock standard SIBO protocol is the SIBO biphasic diet. And then you work your way through that with hardcore antimicrobials. And there's a, you can you can really tell when someone's just come from that. And I know this is a horrible probably thing to say, but I'm gonna say it anyway, because it's Friday, I don't give a fuck. Um, <laughs> don't give a fuck Friday. Um, but there is a very generic SIBO plan that has been um, protocol that has been outlined and given to practitioners. And it is the SIBO biphasic diet with a certain set of supplements. And we see this for a lot of things, but, and um, just a way to, you ba- it basically just gets handed to clients and it's, and then it's just like, okay, well, you navigate this on your own or you can just do your own research. Pull this SIBO biphasic diet from the web um, or off Nerala's website. I think it's available on her website. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, a bloody, it's a bloody good resource. She's done an amazing job putting it together. The What she's done is not the problem. It's how it's used. Yeah. Um, and we obviously see the tail end of a lot of that misuse Um and not individualized treatment at the clinic when people, yeah, exactly like what Jess is saying, have just come on and they've been given this set of supplements. And we know the set of supplements because they're so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> that with the SIBO diet and just long-term use of that, yeah, it just, I can't remember where I was going with my my rant. But anyway, <laughs> it, just me- it just messes people up. And realistically, like yeah. a lot of the times, the SIBO biphasic protocol wasn't even that necessary. Like you have a chat to people about what their symptoms were like. You could have just, they might have just needed to come off the soul for veggies for a bit. Yeah, or, yeah exactly. And, or- and gluten or something like that. Like it didn't, yeah. doesn't have to be as hardcore. So yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's um it's super super common and our goal always is to diversify the diet as much as possible. Like yeah. it's just always a, a, a really important goal for us and unfortunately it's a space where people get really backed into a corner and with a really narrow food intake when it may not be needed and often isn't needed. I'd also say that often SIBO, it's a result of other things going on. Like, yes, it can sometimes just be the main cause on its own, but it can often be a cause because of something else that's happened. So like once we get in and we treat these other things, it will help with the presentation of SIBO, but also I guess what I'm getting at more so there is that people get so hung up on it and it's just like, it's my SIBO. It's like everything, <laughs> everything is about this SIBO and it's like, well, you're kind of forgetting the bigger picture here. Like you're so focused on eradicating SIBO that you're forgetting the expense that you're putting on the rest of your body as far as your lower bowel, microbiome diversity, the effect on your hormones with the lack of carbohydrates that you're consuming long-term. Like it just, it becomes like a fixation. And I think we see where that becomes a bit of a vicious cycle where people are like, my SIBO, my SIBO, my SIBO, I can't get rid of it. And it's just like, maybe actually SIBO isn't the problem and you have gotten rid of it to a point that it's not the issue anymore. It's actually the fact that your lower bowel <laughs> has become a mess or there's yeah. other things at, at play in that. I guess that for me too is about how we would take cases but also look at where testing fits too because sometimes people are still treating off a test that they did 12 months ago or 18 months ago. So we'll do a retest to, to check up on that so we can see how you're going and how you're progressing. Because yeah. also sometimes people will do a retest and their symptoms are great, like they, they feel fine, but the test might say that they're still borderline or that they've got a little bit, you know, maybe their methane's still sitting a bit high. But if they don't have constipation and they feel fine, like it's it's like with a stool test, if it doesn't look perfect but you feel great, That's don't okay. keep just throwing things at it and hammering it. Like yep. it's – so, and I think SIBO, again, is a space where people get really hung up and they just want to have it like eradicated and gone. So. Yeah. It's kind There's, of like the parasite space, isn't it? Like yeah. people get so hung up just trying to treat one parasite. And it's like, well, is that parasite really doing as much damage as you're doing by just constantly throwing things at it yeah, to try and get sure. rid of it? Or is it more about the context of like, hey, we know we've got these things going on in your gut. We know that these are your potential, you know, again, air quotes, but weaknesses or yeah. areas where you're just going to have to look after your gut and be a bit more mindful of things. But if 80% of the time it's, functioning well and you've just got this low level you know reading coming back or even 90% of the time you're feeling great then we're not going to keep putting you back on a restrictive diet and throwing more antimicrobials at you to try and get mm -hmm. rid of this we're just going to try and work with what your gut microbiome is capable of doing mm -hmm. exactly and what about there's a real fear with SIBO2 about um, relapsing and reoccurrence yeah what are your what are your thoughts on oh that? Like, God. I feel like there's a lot of like unnecessary fear there too. I was going to but... say, I feel like a lot of it's unnecessary. Like, I think I always have like the trajectory discussion with my clients. <laughs> I don't know if you have a trajectory discussion, but I have it with mine. <laughs> <So> very specific. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, with anything, whether we're working with histamines, we're working with SIBO, we're working with mental health, we're working with, you know, 
estrogen driven symptoms like we just want to make sure we're moving in a forward direction and that forward direction is not always going to be straightforward it's going to be sometimes it's five steps forward two steps back three steps forward one step back and that's again where that whole relapse comes into it but i think it's really important for people to know that relapse especially with SIBO is is common mm-hmm. um and it's also not the end of the world like mm-hmm. It's the same with anyone when they're working on their health. Like you're not, you don't just go, here's my diagnosis. Here's where I want to be and smooth sail your way into that. Like some people a hundred percent do and they are the lucky ducks. But for most of us with any health conditions, like it is like, it's, you're going to have moments where you, and setbacks and that's completely part of the process and it's completely normal. And there really shouldn't be any fear around it. Like I know, I can even think of one of my clients at the moment and she has come leaps and bounds in the last six months and she's a, she's probably more of a, a histamine, histamine oxalate client. She probably know exactly who she is now that I've said that. But when we first started working together, oh, it's probably been 12 months, but when we first started working together, she couldn't tolerate any supplements, no grains, no starches. She was on very limited veggies. Um, anyway, and we just, we got her got to a stage where finally she could start getting some starch-based vegetables in, which was just a massive game changer. And then some of those lower reactive grains like teff and millet. And she was just doing amazingly. Like we've, you know, six months on and then I spoke to her three weeks ago and all of her symptoms have started to come back. Mm-hmm. And I know how disheartening that is for our clients. And it is, and there's that, there's that whole panic mode and that fear. And we've experienced with all of our hardcore SIBO clients and our hardcore gut clients, Um, there is that whole fear of that, oh, my God, I'm going to go back to square one, but Mm. you won't. Mm. Um, (laughs) Exactly. The foundational work that you put in and the reflare of symptoms I get is really terrifying for people. But if you're working with a practitioner that can just kind of help ground you and ground the situation and be like, Mm. cool, let's systematically just put a plan into place here. This is not the end of the world. Okay, yes, the symptoms feel like the end of the world and they're probably, Mm -hmm. they're very triggering. It's almost like PTSD. Yeah, totally. For clients that have had these chronic gut issues for years and years and years. But I think you can never discredit the amount of work you've put in. And so even sometimes that two steps backwards or that three steps backward might feel like you're going back to square one. You're definitely not and you'll come out of this hole quite quickly Mm -hmm. or, you know, scramble out of a lot quicker than what you would have done 12 months ago. Mm -hmm. So it's just sometimes sitting back down, you know, with your practitioner and going, okay, what has changed in the last four weeks since we spoke or last six weeks since we last Mm. spoke what are the new influencing factors and I know we'll we have big chats with our clients which is why we book out good consults we don't just spend 20 minutes with our clients we'll spend half an hour 45 minutes if we need to to work out what all the potential influencing factors are here and just see what little layers of the onion we can pull back to get you back to a happier space hold you in that space and then move you forward again Mm -hmm. but I guess it's said well said But it is. It's it's fucking terrifying. The whole relapse thing is terrifying for people. But I think it needs to be normalized because just once you have your diagnosis, it doesn't mean it's. I think my back injury is probably the perfect thing. I have to tell you some more about that actually. But anyway, um, <laughs> but that's probably a really good example to take it out of the gut space. Is that when I have my gut flare. I don't just go, cool, here's what I have to do moving forward and I'm just going to mm. be sweet. Like it is three or four weeks of me making some progress where, yeah, all of a sudden I can get myself out of bed, but I still can't go for a walk. And then I get a bit excited as soon as I'm a little bit more pain-free and I might go out for a walk and just overdo it and then I'm back a, I'm back a week. I'm behind mm-hmm. a week from where I was. 
that's just part of the progression. Is it frustrating? Yeah. Fuck yeah, it is. Yeah. Do, do I sit down and have little tears to myself sometimes? Absolutely. But yeah. I know that the general trajectory is that I'm moving forward, I'm making progress and relapse is common, like with mm-hmm. any sort of pain or pain flare or pain mm-hmm. injury. So I think that needs to be taken to the gut space as well. Like it's, it's so expect true. Expect a and, little setback, but it's yeah. okay. And also I think which, yeah, you really highlighted there that it, um, understanding and education of your own body. So I think when people relapse, if they don't have the right support mechanisms, um, they don't know what to do. There is that horrible like trauma triggers of like I've gone back to square one. But if you've worked through with a practitioner and you know your body, you know your own um, sort of coping mechanisms and what you need to do to get back on top of your health, it's so chalk and cheese because you can really manage a flare really quickly as opposed to someone that doesn't know their body, doesn't know their triggers, doesn't know what they can use to get them through. Um, but I'd also say, like, I think there's an element of relapsing in some cases where people aren't treating properly moving forward. Like they're, they're doing, say, the antimicrobial work, but particularly with SIBO, if there's, say, a motility issue, which is driving the SIBO, that's not being supported moving forward and they don't understand that or a practitioner doesn't understand. So they stop treatment, they feel great, and then things build back up again. Or they think things are gone and it's maybe the SIBO has gone from like 100% down to 40%, but because it hasn't been pulled down enough then they've come off things and it's sort of rebuilt up too so I think that's where sometimes we're retesting and also supporting post antimicrobials in the right way for SIBO is really important so that people don't fall as easily into relapsing but yeah again if you're if you're working with someone who understands all of that and you know what you need to do and they understand your body like it's it's I think, so much easier to navigate. And I think that whole not panicking as a practitioner is really important too yeah. because I think I've seen a lot of, and not in a bad way, but I've worked with clients who have worked with panic practitioners and they they panic the minute your symptoms reflare. Yeah. And it's this whole, okay, we've got to strip you back to the biphasic diet. We've got to retest. We've got to feel yes. this. It's like, hang on a second. It's just a little setback. Like, take a breath. Like, do we need to go back to the biphasic diet? Or we, do we just need to go mm. back a couple of weeks with some of these prebiotics that we've just reintroduced and just pull the reins back a bit? Have we just that's gone so a bit true. too quick too soon? Actually, that's something I know with clients of mine when they might have a flare. They, like, when you have that consultation and they're, like, in a in a complete tears or meltdown because things have flared up, Mm. they are often so relieved when you have that conversation with them about one, you're not, you haven't gone back to the start. Like particularly if they've, done it to themselves like it's which, like which is really common <laughs> like you know they just say they've had like a big weekend or they've been eating certain foods and they've flared themselves up they're like yeah. I've ruined it I've I've undone all the good work so no, when you, you like made. no you haven't <laughs> and then two like we not we actually aren't going back to square one with your diet we're just going to do these changes yeah. for the next week or two settle you down and then you're going to keep going forward yeah they're often so happy and relieved because in their head they've like dramatized it to i've screwed it all up 
and I'm going to have to go back to the start. Yeah. It's like, and it's going to yeah, be this nah. long drawn out <laughs> process again because the reality of it is, is once you've been through the process once and you've done it properly, having to go through the process again, not even from square one, but from like, let's just say third base, <laughs> you yeah. know, like even like I'm just thinking my client that I was just talking about, like what we did was we just peeled her diet back. We didn't go back to where she what she was eating. We just went back to very basic non-reactive foods. We chatted about some things that were going on in her environment that had changed mm-hmm. um, and just little things like that. And we just said, okay, for the next two weeks, let's just do this. And I got an email this morning, Every like swelling in her fingers is settling down. All her gut symptoms are settling back down. It's like, cool. Mm-hmm. It's not going to take us six months to get her all those foods back in. It'll probably take us eight weeks yeah do you know what i mean because she's already got that confidence we already know what works we know what the foods were that were the unsettling factors um and we just don't go back into that space but we've still got this space that you were completely safe in for six months and Mm -hmm. that won't be so hard to get you back into it's not going to be another six months to do that so Mm -hmm. i think the thing that you honed in on before that i absolutely love and i chat to my clients about with SIBO and any sort of gut stuff is the whole getting to know your gut and the education space around that because how one client's gut response will not be how the next client's gut response and it will not be how the next client's gut response. And that's what I said to my, say to my clients, my, everything that happens, bad or good, tells us something about your gut and exactly. you will learn so much about yourself in this process to the point where hopefully you won't need me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's so, I think in, in um, an initial consultation, that's often the, the spiel that I'll give in that intro of like, <laughs> you know, our goal is to educate you so you know what you need to do long term yeah. without me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So that's actually a good segue into our next point. So when we're working with clients and we're looking at navigating them through this space and reintroduction of foods, we want to look at what's realistic as far as food coming back into their diet. And I think similar to other gut issues, there can be a real fear about reintroduction of foods, expanding foods. Um, as far as like clients having a fear around it, but also just um, a fear of the fact that they're going to never be able to like eat a diversity of foods in their diet mm. again. And look, I, I feel like if, again, it's managed correctly, then realistically, a lot of the time we can get the diet back to a good whole food diet. But like Carissa was saying before, every person needs to be managed independently based on their own triggers. So it might be you can go back to a really good whole food diet, but we know there's a few foods that are trigger foods for you. Or you have to be careful to a point with how much you eat of certain types of foods. But that should be, again, super individualized. Yeah, agreed. And I think too, like in that space, like I want to just say, I always try and have a chat to my clients about, realistic expectations around that as well like I always say to people don't like some people will but the majority of us that have been through gut stuff and are constantly working on our gut microbiome and trying to keep her happy and look after and feed her and nourish her and do all the things that Mm -hmm. we do um, it's not realistic to think you're just going to be able to go back and eat whatever you want whenever you want and not experience gut symptoms if you mm-hmm. were to ask the lady person who really wasn't in tune with gut health, who just ate whatever they want, like whenever they wanted, how their gut actually functions, there's only going to mm-hmm. be a small percentage of them that tell you their gut functions fine. The majority of people just put their head in the sand with gut function and deal with a yep. shitty gut 
and that's yeah. just their normal and they deal with the systemic inflammation or the you know the fatigue or the brain fog or the weight gain or anything that comes with that and that's just and that's fine that's completely their choice and their decision but for those of us that are working on our gut health it comes and I hate to say like, but with a sacrifice, there's just going to have to be some things in your life that you just have to accept are not going to be back in there. And for some mm-hmm. people, that's gluten. For some people, that's dairy. For some people, it's garlic and onions. For some, it's ferments to a degree. Like it's just, there's going to be an element somewhere along the line where you like, I feel like you just need to make peace with the fact that, you know, you may be able to have these foods as a one-off. You may never be able to touch them again. <laughs> Like, and that is, you know, that's unfortunate, but it is part of the process. Like if I could just go out and eat gluten whenever I wanted or dairy whenever I wanted with absolutely no effect, then I would. But the, Agreed. The, Jess would love a bloody block of cheese, but she can't have it <laughs> because it will absolutely <laughs> fucking kill her. <laughs> I will die. She will die. <laughs> um, but like, and I think that is a realistic expectation that people need to um, just, I think some people are fine with it because some people know where they've come from and where they're going yeah. and they're just, if yeah. they can just even have, get back to the moderate FODMAP space, they're happy. And I'm like, no, I want to get you so much further than that. But mm-hmm. I think some people get really kind of impatient as well. And they're like, well, when can I just eat gluten again? And when can I just have yes. garlic and onion again? And I'm like, there's an actual very real chance that you may not be able to, or you may not be able yeah. to without experiencing some sort of gastrointestinal symptom. And I need you to be okay with that because mm. that is just the nature of how fundamentally your gut microbiome has changed. And, yep. you know, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, so true. it is, it's, so it's hard because you want to be able to say to people, sure, you can have all the things back, but nine yeah. times out of 10, like there's going to be some things, you know, like even the, well, particularly with those intolerances, like you were just talking yeah. about, like, yeah, we might, we might work through expanding all of these fermentable foods again, mm. but we've uncovered along the way, like a strong dairy intolerance or a gluten and cauliflower intolerance. hates and, you. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever it is. And like, you know, we're, we're bloody good at what we do at JCM but we're not magicians like I'd love to be able to wave a wand and make my immune system love dairy yeah. but it's not going to happen so we we will help you feel the best that we can but there is a an element of as you work through this process realizing that sometimes you're going to figure out some things that just aren't good for you yeah individually and look most people are bloody just so happy to feel good that they're like yeah. no I can't eat dairy or if I have it on the odd occasion it's just going to make me feel like shit and I know that that's why then they're happy with that but yeah expectations in this space are are really important so I'm glad you pointed that and I think dropping what is normal is and what I think everyone needs to get away from that where we need to fit into this box of being normal to be either accepted by society or accepted by our friend circle because the more we learn about our unique you know, blueprint is that we're all so individual. So we need to get away from this. What is, I just want to be able to eat like a normal person. A normal person eats shit. So (laughs) I shouldn't say that, but. I have my meat pie at the footy. My meat pie, my ice breaker. (laughs) No, I shouldn't say that. No, I feel like we're picking on the poor tradies. Um, (laughs) But there is no normal diet. Like, you know, Mm. there is no mainstream way of eating. It's just what you 
you know, it's just what kind of society has dictated is, is, is in, you know, inverted commas normal. Mm. So just drop that whole, drop that whole of, I want to get back to being normal because no one's normal. We're all unique. We all have a unique set of, you know, um, foods that, you know, fuel our body and, and work well for us. Just like we have a same, you know, it's the same with exercise or those expectations. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of chat with chats with some of my clients about, um, just even what they should be able to smash out on a day-to-day basis and they compare themselves to other, you know, friends, mm-hmm. people in their friend circle. They're like, well, I should just be able to do this, 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 this and this because my friend such and such can do it and my sister can do it. And I'm like, but you can't, mate, and that's okay. Like mm. your body mm-hmm. doesn't like to be pushed to that extreme because the stress response is too big for you. So, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Let's um, let's all wrap it up. Shut up, Carissa. Going down a rabbit hole. Get out! Get out of that. Get out of your rabbit hole. (laughs) So I think the last area we kind of touched on this a little bit already, but other sort of overlapping conditions with SIBO, because again, it's it's not always isolated on its own. So if we see SIBO, we can often see lower bowel issues so lebo lower intestinal bacterial overgrowth there can be yeast overgrowth there can be as we said cfo so fungal overgrowth with the bacteria um, there may be issues with oxalates and histamines so there's a whole plethora of overlapping conditions that can come into this and I just think that, again, highlights why it's so important to work through this with a practitioner in this space because it's not always just one thing. Yeah, um, it's like It's like when someone starts to – I was talking to a client about this the other day when the, um, they make changes over, say, a six-week period and they're just feeling so much better and they're like, oh, I don't know whether it's because I cut this food out or because I took this supplement or I did this. And it's like it's a combination of everything yeah. a- along with time. And so is the opposite to that of where you have a adverse gut condition. And yes, SIBO might be an element of that, but there can be other layers and understanding all of them and how they're interrelated is really important so that we can look at, say, a SIBO treatment plan, but we might need to consider histamines role in that or yeast role in that. So it's not always just um, SIBO on its own. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. I have to add just before we finish that Damien has added a new acronym, (laughs) acronym, acronym to this space called FIFO which means food in, food out. And it is an excuse for obsessive gas. Just like to add that one. Uh, that is an excuse for excessive eating. <laughs> yeah, that too. Food in, food. And when I'm complaining about excessive gas production, he's like, it's my FIFO. I can't help it. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, man. But I think that's everything. Is there anything you'd like to add before no, we finish I think, up? I think, I think we covered it. Yeah. Well, as usual, if anyone has any questions, let us know, um, particularly in regards to this SIBO space. You can DM us. Um, please share the podcast as always. Pop it on your um, Insta stories and share for others. And head to iTunes to leave us a rating because we love that too. Yep. But otherwise, thanks for joining in and um, we will chat to you next time. Chat to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.